Acts 14. Bleeding and left for dead on the outskirts of a hateful city. That's where the Apostle Paul found himself during one of his missionary journeys. Paul had preached Jesus in the Zeus-loving city of Lystra. The idolatrous crowd who one moment wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas were easily swayed by Jews coming from Iconium and Antioch. And so that same crowd that in one moment were to worship Paul and Barnabas all of a sudden were swayed and now they're picking up stones to stone and kill the Apostle Paul. By the grace of God, Paul survived that attack. The next day, he went with Barnabas to another town called Derby. Incredibly, after Paul and Barnabas made more disciples in the city of Derby, these courageous church planters decided to go back to Lystra, where Paul almost died. The question I ask you this morning is, why would the Apostle Paul, after being stoned and left for dead outside of Lystra, and having then leaving and making disciples elsewhere, why would he return back to the place where he came face to face with his own death? We're going to see the answer in Acts chapter 14, verse 21, and you may be surprised. It says, When they had preached the gospel to that city, and that's Derby, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, and here's the reason why, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Paul and Barnabas were willing to put their lives on the line because having passed through the towns of Lystra and others, they weren't content simply seeing disciples made, but they understood the importance of organizing those disciples into local congregations and being organized under appointed leadership. And so Paul and Barnabas understood that if they were to be faithful to their calling, to fulfill the Great Commission, which is not just making disciples, but then teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded, they would have to organize individuals into congregations who then could continue in the faith under the oversight of appointed under-shepherds. And so, this morning what we want to do is we want to simply focus upon God's design for the church in the realm of leadership. Paul and Barnabas thought it was so important to establish leadership and appoint elders over the churches in Lystra that they risked their lives. How much the more then should we as a church be committed to the design of Christ's church when it comes to leadership? This pattern of Paul and Barnabas and all of Paul's missionary journeys of making disciples and then organizing them into local assemblies and then pointing a plurality of elders to oversee them is consistent throughout all of his missionary journeys. We see that in Titus chapter 1. Remember? We spent all that time in Titus. Paul says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so we see that a church without elders is a church out of order. A church without elders is a church in disarray, you could say. So for Paul, a church was not in order until it had leadership. 
A church not following the pattern of having leadership of a plurality of elders was a church that was out of order. And I would say even a church that's disobedient to God's design. So this morning, we simply want to consider what is God's design for leadership? And specifically, why has God chosen to establish a plurality of elders as his leadership model for the church? Have you thought about this? Maybe you come from some church background where you've had a single pastor-led church. And I would just have you maybe challenge you a little bit. We'll have this discussion tonight as well. Uh, Maybe what are some challenges or some weaknesses of a model where you only have one man leading the show? Maybe you have some things you might want to share where you think there's some strengths to having only one man leading the show. But uh, we're going to look at what the Bible says about leadership and specifically how it presents a plurality of elders as God's ideal. So... When Paul and Barnabas, look at verse 23 of Acts 14. It says, When they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Now notice the tense, uh, not the tense, look at the uh, plurality there when it comes to elders. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, elders for them in every church, what do we see? God's pattern is that each church have a plurality of elders. Elders, plural, every church, singular. So the truly organized assembly has a plurality of elders overseeing them. Consistently throughout the New Testament, we see this. This is not an anomaly here in Acts chapter 14. In Paul's opening greeting to the church at Philippi, he refers to the overseers and deacons in that one church. In Acts 20, 28, as we're going to see in a little bit, Paul warns the elders of the church of Ephesus, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among whom God has made you overseers, plural, one church. The writer of Hebrews called his readers to obey the leaders who were laboring among them. You see it consistently throughout the New Testament, churches are led by plurality of men. And so we're going to say very boldly, The single pastor-led model of church leadership is unbiblical. In the instances where we do see one man, Timothy, Titus, these are emissaries of the apostles who are actually busy appointing plurality of elders to oversee the churches. And so let's consider some of the reasons. Maybe you have some ideas. If this was open forum, I would take some feedback. We'll do that tonight. But maybe you have some ideas of why it's practically Ideal to have multiple men leading a church. And I confess this morning that this is more of a lesson than a sermon. This is more education. This is more equipping us as a church as we go forward, knowing God's design for the body. Remember in Exodus chapter 18 when uh, Moses was sitting before all of Israel and he was judging them. And what I mean by that is they'd bring all their cases to Moses They had some conflict, they'd bring it to Moses. They had some question as to God's will for them, they'd bring it to Moses. And Moses had a father-in-law named Jethro. And his father-in-law came to him and he said, What what you're doing is not good, he says to Moses. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. That's what he said to Moses. Moses, this is too much for you. You've taken the spiritual watch care of the entire congregation of Israel upon your shoulders. It's too much. You're going to wear yourself out. You're going to burn out, Moses. Great practical advice, isn't it? Likewise, the spiritual watch care of God's people in the context of the church is too much for one man to handle. 
The need for a plurality of elders goes beyond numbers, however. It's not just a matter of, okay, too many people. It arises out of the inherent imbalances, limitations, remaining propensity for sin that exists in every man. Just like God has designed the church at large to function as a community of interdependent and indispensable members, relying upon the exercise of one another's spiritual gifts for the well-being of the body, so too he's designed the leadership of a church to have that same uh, interaction, a microcosm of that same community. And so it's only a plurality of leaders, elders, who can provide the accountability encouragement, wisdom, burden-sharing, and giftedness that's needed to mitigate the inherent imbalances and limitations present in in everyone. To, To put the leadership of a church on a single man is to assume that he has everything the church needs for its spiritual growth and maturity. So there is the sharing of burdens that makes a plurality of elders necessary. You Just think about it, right? More people, more problems. Among the sheep, spiritual struggles, relational conflict, marital, marital difficulties, moral lapses, uh, plus just all the life trials that are always looming, and all of these of an entire congregation, the expectation that one man has the ability to help and shepherd every individual in the church. Add to this the external pressures of potential persecution, false teaching, divisive people. And then consider that any one man has his own issues going on as well, right? You can see how one man would be hard-pressed to rear up under the burdens of ministry. And you wonder why the tenure, the tenure of the average pastor is only a handful of years. Many a pastor has succumbed to ministry burnout because he's taken upon his shoulders the entire burden of shepherding the entire flock of God's people. Sadly, some men suffer the consequences of the very leadership model that they have taught their churches to embrace, which is just a single man leading an entire church. Such an approach encourages the congregation, I think, to have highly unrealistic expectations of a pastor. And it really makes a pastor consistently to have a feeling of guilt or inadequacy because he can't rear up under that pressure. On the other hand, when a church is overseen by a plurality of elders, uh, these men have a clear advantage of sharing burdens, sharing burdens of the people. Practically, that might look like you have a a, uh, a group of elders who might look at the congregation and might even look at the names of individuals and divide those up so that individual elders could maybe take on uh, a dozen or so members and say, okay, these folks are on my watch care list. These are who I'm praying for. And uh, maybe the congregation can understand that, okay, the elder that I can look to who's exercising that personal care is this particular elder, and uh, we can share burdens that way. Seems to make common sense, doesn't it? So there is the sharing of burdens, and uh, that's one of the reasons why a plurality of elders is important. Next of all, we also think that a plurality of elders is important because of the need for an incur- for encouragement and account- and encouragement and accountability among the elders. The encouragement and accountability of peers, we could say. And that is, I can say that I'm encouraged by you, right? And uh, Jared, as an elder, is encouraged by you. 
But there is also an encouragement, a special encouragement that comes through a peer relationship among those men who are serving together with the same burdens and the same concerns, the same longings as elders. And so a plurality of elders has a built-in encouragement and accountability of a peer group that is very, very beneficial to the men. A brotherhood, brotherhood of elders working together, overseeing the same congregation, providing a level of unique encouragement that can't be had from any other source. And so the need for the encouragement and accountability appears. And accountability. Now, some of you are very bold. And some of you, if you saw a fault in my life, would come right up to me and tell me. You know who you are. <laughs> uh, others, however, for some reason, and I've been told before, some people think I'm intimidating. And those are the people who don't know me. And once they get to know me, you say, what was I thinking? But uh, when it comes to eldership, oftentimes a congregation might feel some intimidation or some reluctance when it comes to approaching an elder or a pastor to point out some faults, to confront over sin or something like this. You know what a plurality of eldership does? It says, men, you are all accountable to each other. So at any given time, one elder is entirely accountable to the other elders, uh, welcoming these men speaking into their lives and challenging them on things they might say or do. There's a mutual accountability in the fellowship of a plurality of elders. Each elder is especially aware of the qualifications that the other elders must maintain, and so we can provide an accountability to each other. How's your spiritual life going? How's your marriage going? Uh, How's your parenting going? Uh, You know what? Are you keeping your temper under control? Uh, We can look at those qualifications and keep one another accountable in those specific areas. So there is a mutual accountability. There's an encouragement uh, amongst peers. You understand that there are temptations to leadership. This is one of the reasons in a future lesson we're going to see that God has said that a new convert shouldn't become an elder. The reason a new convert shouldn't become an elder is because there are real temptations to leadership. There's the temptation to insulate yourself from correction. There's a temptation to abuse influence. There's a temptation really to have a sense of self-importance. When an elder is constantly faced with the obligation to maintain a loving community with other elders, then he's constantly confronted uh, with uh, potentially uh, the fact that he may have given in to some of those temptations. He's forced to adopt attitudes of humility and cooperation and deference. In this way, a plurality of elders requires each man to exercise all the one another's of Scripture, all the fruit of the spirits, and uh, he has to work in loving community with those who are different from himself. And that way, a plurality of elders really models for the church exactly what the entire church is called to do with one another. So, because an elder functions with a group of co-equals, his opinions and his desires are continually kept in check. He's prevented from making this a one-man show. It's especially important when we consider the natural limitations and imbalances and even propensity for sin that all men still possess. Next of all, plurality of eldership helps with what? The encouragement and accountability of peers. It helps with burden sharing. It also provides for the church a balance of gifts and a collective wisdom. You understand how spiritual gifts work, right? The Lord has given you His Holy Spirit, and by His Holy Spirit, He has given you some measure of grace, 
which is given to you for the purpose of exercising for the spiritual upbuilding of the church at large. And so the Lord would use you in some capacity to bless the church. And that's why we don't believe that church membership is a matter of consumerism, but everybody ought to be laboring in some way, exercising their spiritual gifts for the benefit of the church at large. And you know that not every individual has every spiritual gift. You have strengths and you have weaknesses. There's some of you who may have a gift of mercy. You're very tender and compassionate to the struggles of others. There's others of you that might have the gift of discernment. I mean, you can pick out error from a mile away, and you stand for the truth, and you're a a fervent defender of the truth. There's others of you that have the gift of service. I mean, you love serving behind the scenes. You don't care about a spotlight. You just want to be of service to others. And we could go on. Uh, We all have some measure of the Spirit given to us for the spiritual good of others. And we know that the diversity of our gifts and the fact that we don't have every spiritual gift makes us dependent upon one another. I need you and you need me. The same is true within the plurality of eldership. If you only have one man exercising leadership of our church, then that church is really limited to benefiting from the very narrow giftedness of that one individual. If you have a plurality of elders, you also have a plurality of giftedness. And so, for instance, imagine if you have an elder who's very oriented towards organization or administration. With every strength of spiritual gift also comes a uh, imbalance, potential, potential imbalance as well. And so if you are one who's gifted in the area of organization, uh, maybe sometimes you forget that it's actually the Holy Spirit who produces spiritual fruit and not your good planning. If you're one who has a spiritual gift of mercy, uh, maybe you're very compassionate towards others, but that uh, imbalance may be that you're not one who's going to be calling out sin when you see it. And so the one who has a gift of mercy also might need the balance of that one who has the gift of discernment. The one who has uh, the gift of administration and organization might need the other balance of that individual who has the gift of faith and saying, hey, remember, you need to bathe this thing in prayer. You understand how that needs to function within the plurality of elders as well? If you have an elder who's gifted in administration, he needs that elder who's also gifted in prayer, for instance. A plurality of elders provides a balance of giftedness. It also provides a collective wisdom. We don't all have the same life experiences. We don't all have the same biblical knowledge. Uh, We don't all come from the same background. A diversity of ages, a diversity of ethnicity, and a diversity of experience uh, all help us to have a collective wisdom, uh, putting many minds together when it comes to exercising discernment and making decisions. So, we have the balance of giftedness, we have a collective wisdom, we have the accountability of a peer group, we have the sharing of burdens. And then there's also an element of reputational protection. We won't go much into this, but the Bible has a strong principle of two or three witnesses, right? Think about church discipline, uh, when you bring two or three with you to... Uh, witness a situation, and that goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. That strong principle of two or three witnesses is always present when you have a plurality of elders. And so if there's some accusation or something that happens, uh, maybe there's some conflict and somebody says, you know what, that pastor just has it out for me. There's some personal personal uh, issues going on there. Well, if you have a plurality of elders, you constantly, continually have the witness of two or three, uh, uh, two or three individuals. And so there's a reputational protection there. So, in this way, a plurality of elders serves as a model community of men with their balanced giftedness and their different personalities and uh, their, all their diversity and their natural limitations and all of this, having to exercise the spiritual, their spiritual gifts and the one another's of Scripture together, working with one another for the good of the body. And what are they doing? 
They're simply modeling for the church what the church is to be at large. So, in all of that, you say, okay, well, that makes common sense. We see the Apostle Paul is appointing multiple elders and churches. We see practical reasons why that's necessary, uh, why we should follow that pattern. So then what about a lead pastor? Clearly, there is a plurality of elders here. We wish to add even more elders, and that's one of the reasons we're doing this series. But what about a lead pastor? Clearly, I'm the main face of the church here. My name is on the advertisements. Uh, I'm the one behind the pulpit the vast majority of the time. So what about a lead pastor? Can you still have a lead pastor or a teaching pastor or a senior pastor with a plurality of elders? And of course, we would say yes. This term you might use is first among equals, equality, yet clearly there's one recognized as a leader. And we see this modeled for us in the New Testament. Peter was in no way spiritually superior to James or John, yet he was consistently functioning as a spokesperson for the church. Paul and Barnabas were co-equals, but Paul was recognized as the chief speaker among Paul and Barnabas, for instance. Co-equals as apostles, yet differing in function. In fact, the Bible actually shows us that Paul expected that among a plurality of elders, there might be some differences this way. And so 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so Paul recognizes that even among a plurality of elders, there are those, and we know biblically that a requirement for an elder is that he be able to teach. And so every elder should be able to teach. But Paul here singles out those who are laboring in preaching and teaching, recognizing that among the elders there will be those uh, who are uh, giving themselves to that type of labor. And he says those ought to be given double honor. And so he recognizes there is a difference. And so within a plurality of elders, there may be those who labor in preaching and teaching and uh, ought to be recognized as such. Why? Because as we've already said, spiritual gifts come in varying degrees, right? Uh, and so you may have the ability to teach, and the person next to you might have the ability to teach, uh, but you recognize that uh, maybe uh, one has uh, greater time, greater ability to give themselves to that uh, practice, uh, and uh, that's true with every other area of giftedness as well. And so the church ought to recognize that and to prioritize the ministry of the Word, for instance. However, even with a first among equals... The lead pastor, senior pastor, teaching pastor is equally accountable to every other elder. That is, if the church is making decisions, the lead pastor doesn't get two votes. He is as accountable to every other elder. He has equal say in all decision-making. This provides the needed checks and balances, uh, which are required, especially considering the fact that when somebody stands behind the pulpit and you end up becoming kind of the the face of the church, you're up there in front all the time, there are going to be more temptations with that type of position, and the accountability that is offered by a plurality of elders helps to check those temptations. There's some very practical reasons why a church, even adopting God's model for a plurality of elders, will still appoint a lead pastor. One of those things, just number one, time and money. Uh, There are some individuals who will have the time required to study and to prepare sermons and to counsel church members and to contemplate the direction of the church. Uh, Many men are prohibited from from that just simply because of the responsibilities of life. 
A church does well when it can provide enough financial support for one pastor. We're still working towards that, that, that place where we can financially support uh, one pastor full-time. To do so for all the elders or for a multitude of elders uh, really is out of reach for the vast majority of churches. And so, for this reason, within a plurality of elders, you're going to find both staff elders, you're going to find lay elders, you're going to find those who are paid, you're going to find those who are volunteers, and that's expected. And among those, you're also going to find those whom the church has chosen to, chosen to fully support financially in recognition that he has the desire and ability to fully dedicate himself to the task of shepherding. And so you do have a lead pastor, even among a plurality. And Paul acknowledges that. Well, how then do we, having recognized there's a plurality of elders, that's the biblical model, and so we're going to adopt that as a church, how then do we go about recognizing and appointing men to that office? And that's what we're going to look at in Acts chapter 20. So look at Acts chapter 20. You say, okay, as a church, we're committed to this. We see it biblically. We see it's God's model. In obedience, we want to adopt that uh, practice. We want to make sure that we're following God's design. So now what do we do? How do we go about it? How do we recognize men who are fit for the office? Well, I mean, the quick answer is, well, you look for qualified men. 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, sorry, Titus chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, you see qualifications. And we're going to look at those in the coming weeks. But I want us to consider something else in preparation for those lists of qualifications we're going to see in, in the coming weeks. What we're going to see is that we have to, as a church, submit to the reality that it's actually the Holy Spirit. It's actually the Holy Spirit who produces elders. The church needs to recognize that and submit to that reality. We're going to see that in Acts chapter 20. Here in Acts chapter 20, the context here is the city of Ephesus. Paul has come to Ephesus, and some years earlier he was there, and he found 12 disciples. Those 12 disciples were disciples of John the Baptist. He preaches to them Jesus. They get baptized in the name of Jesus. The Ephesian church is born. He continues there for two and a half years. He's preaching the gospel so that all who are in Asia hear the gospel. And so that church is established, it's growing, it's thriving. Uh, We have men and women whose lives are being absolutely transformed. They're moving away from witchcraft and from the dark dark arts and so on. They're burning their books uh, from that old lifestyle, and they're turning to Christ. Amazing situation there in Ephesus. But with that, as we said last week, came a struggle. The gospel was so effective that it was actually hurting the idol trade. So you have coppersmiths and you had silversmiths who were upset because they're losing their livelihood because people are giving up their idols. And so they lead a riot. They lead the whole city to riot against the Apostle Paul, to riot against the gospel. They lead the whole city in this patriotic chant of Artemis of the Ephesians and so on. And so Paul's life is in danger again. And so uh, he moves on to minister elsewhere. But then just like he did in Lystra, he comes back. And he's passing through this time. And as he's passing through Ephesus, he calls for the elders of the Ephesian church. And we see this in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. It says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. One of the things we notice there is that when Paul had to flee Ephesus because of the riot that was going on, he didn't leave them leaderless. He had already appointed elders to oversee the congregation. And so when he left, there they were in the watch care of faithful under-shepherds. But now he comes back through, and he calls for the elders. 
that plurality of elders who are overseeing the church, and he wants to speak to them. This is Paul's farewell address before he goes to Jerusalem, fully expecting that martyrdom may await him in the near future. And look at what he says in verse 25. It says, And now, behold, I know that none, of, uh, that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. What I want to notice there, and again, prior to these coming lessons on qualifications, I want us first to recognize as a church that it's the Holy Spirit who appoints overseers. Paul says to the elders in Ephesus, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers over the church of God. And so in what sense does the Holy Spirit work? And so I'm just going to give you a few points, and we're going to close with these ideas. First of all, it can be said that the Holy Spirit makes elders in that it is the Spirit who produces within a man the aspiration for the office. The aspiration for the office. We see in 1 Timothy chapter 3, when Paul writes to Timothy years later, as Timothy is ministering in Ephesus, he says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And so as we think about eldership at Calvary Baptist Church, one of the questions we put out there is, Men, do any of you aspire to the office? Has the Holy Spirit placed within your heart a desire to take upon the servant leadership role over God's people, functioning as a faithful under-shepherd for the spiritual well-being of the church. To aspire to something is to have a serious desire for it. The book of Hebrews uses that same word in Hebrews chapter 11, speaking of those who have a heavy longing for the heavenly city which is to come. A, A serious desire, a heavy longing. As men are considered for the office of elder, it's only those men who have a healthy longing and aspiration for the responsibilities that are required. Peter touches on this as well when he says to elders that you are to exercise oversight not under compulsion, but willingly, eagerly. This is what you want to do. This is your longing. Do some men serve as elders reluctantly? Yes. Some out of obligation? Yes. Some half-heartedly? Yes. And so Paul and Peter both would say, hey, church, uh, protect against that. Don't, don't have a man serve as elder who feels compelled to, who feels obligated to. But find men who have an internal yearning to serve Jesus in this way. A church, and we're going to get to this in a second when it comes to prayer, but a church has to recognize that men need a healthy, spirit-driven aspiration because plenty of people would love to be in a position of spiritual leadership for all sorts of other nefarious reasons. Prominence, influence, power. And that's perverse. The church needs to recognize that just because somebody says, I want to be an elder, doesn't necessarily mean that that's driven by the Holy Spirit. And so we're looking for a healthy, spirit-driven aspiration. If that comes from a genuine desire to sacrificially serve God's people, then you may recognize that's coming from the Holy Spirit. And when considering a man's aspiration, it's important for a church to recognize that plenty of individuals long for position for selfish reasons. How do we know this? 
Because look around. I mean, you can look at the landscape of churches and understand or, or spiritual organizations and see that many greedy, abusive, authoritarian pastors have found themselves in positions of influence. So the church must be careful. The church must be extremely discerning when considering a man's desire for the office. There's a world of difference between coveting a position of power and longing to humbly serve. Paul could tell the elders in Ephesus that the Holy Spirit had made them overseers because they possessed a spirit-driven longing to serve the Lord as under-shepherds. They had an aspiration. Next of all, the Holy Spirit produces not only an aspiration for the office, as Paul said to Timothy, but the Holy Spirit also produces elders by developing their qualifications. Developing their qualifications. We're going to see in the coming weeks that in... Titus chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, there are lists of qualifications when it comes to character, when it comes to home life, and even when it comes to giftedness. All of these things are produced by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one who produces the fruit of the Spirit. And so if a man is not to be quick-tempered, for instance, it's the Holy Spirit that produces patience, for instance. And so the Spirit produces the qualifications of an elder. I'm going to give you a quick list of those qualifications. In regard to his home life, the elder must be sexually and emotionally faithful to his wife. He must have his children under control and otherwise manage his household well. As to his temperament, he is to be sensible, self-controlled, gentle, uncontentious. He's not to be quick-tempered. Certainly, he's not to be violent. He must be known as a respectable man in and outside the church. He must not get drunk He does not love money. He's hospitable to believers and hospitable to unbelievers alike. He loves what is good. He loves what is just. He loves what is holy. Regarding the scriptures, he's able to both encourage uh, men and women in the scriptures to sound doctrine, and he's able to refute those who contradict it. He's a man who's both capable and inclined to teach the Bible. And as is clear from the nature of those qualifications, an elder must be one who's tested over time and therefore not a new convert. Those are the qualifications. It's noteworthy that every one of those qualifications, with the exception of teaching, are character qualities. And the very same character qualities that the Holy Spirit seeks to produce in every single believer. And so, when you see a man who's qualified for eldership, he's a man in whom the Holy Spirit has worked and produced those qualifications. Next of all, The Holy Spirit not only produces the qualifications, but he also empowers an elder's giftedness. The Bible gives really one spiritual gift that's required for eldership, uh, or one ability, I should say, and that is the ability to teach. And that's spirit-given, because that's a spiritual gift. And so the Bible says that a potential elder is one who ought to be apt, or who is apt to teach able to teach the Word of God. And again, a product of the Holy Spirit. So in summary, the Christ-like character expected of the elder is a product of the Spirit's sanctifying work, just as the ability to teach the Word of God is a product of the Spirit's gifting. And in in those ways, the Holy Spirit is responsible for producing the qualifications necessary to serve as elder. Next of all, we're going to look at the other side of it, And that is, whereas the Holy Spirit is working in men, giving them an aspiration, a desire for eldership, at the same time working in their lives and qualifying them for the office by working in them a Christ-like attitude in temperament 
and also at the same time gifting them with the ability to teach, the Holy Spirit is also then working in the congregation to recognize that work. And this is where all of us come in here. You understand it's actually the congregation's responsibility to recognize uh, uh, men among them in whom the Holy Spirit is doing this work. And so if you're a member of at Calvary Baptist Church, you have a job to do. Your job is to recognize men in whom the Lord has developed a shepherd-like care. These are men that you understand. Men, their character is such where they care about people. They're seeking to encourage people spiritually. They know the Word of God, and they can use the Word of God in the lives of these individuals, and, they, and they're busy doing this. Eldership is not one of those things that says, okay, well, now once we give you the title, you've got to start doing all these things. Eldership is uh, the recognition that somebody is qualified is looking at somebody who's busy about this just as a matter of character. And so we as a congregation are looking for men, and you're observing men who have these qualifications who are functioning in this way. And we as elders, just this morning, I had somebody say, you know what? He said, me and my wife were talking about this, and we have about four names of men that they were thinking about seemed like elder potential. And I asked him who they were, and he wouldn't tell me, which is not how you're to operate, Jonathan. <laughs> so, uh, but you have a job to do. And so you make those observations, and you share, you know what? I look at this individual, and I say, this person is eldership material. Why? Because the calling to eldership is a calling to shepherd. And so the congregation needs to accept this individual as one from whom they're willing to receive that shepherd-like care. And so if the congregation is not on board, and we could recommend men, but if it hasn't been your experience that this individual is a loving Christ-like figure who seeks to care for the spiritual well-being of, of the flock, well then, that's not someone that we are to appoint. And so the con- whole congregation has a responsibility here. And we're reminded of, number one, in Acts chapter 6, when they were appointing deacons, and, uh, and the apostles said to the congregation there, look out from among you men who have these qualifications. The need for that was the church was so large that they understood the congregation would know best. The congregation sees things that maybe the eldership doesn't see. You know what it's like, if any of you have functioned in a position of leadership, that when you are around people, they're on their best behavior. It's like that, that old theory, right? I mean, if you're going to measure the temperature of something, you really can't do it without altering the temperature. As soon as you put the thermometer into it, now you've altered the temperature of the thing that you're measuring. The same is true when an elder walks into a room, because now all of a sudden people seem to change and they're on their best behavior. And so what we observe and what we might know might be different from what you observe and what you know. And so we want to know from you what you've recognized and what you've observed in the lives of men. And so we're going to ask you, uh, who might you recommend? What have you witnessed? And maybe we're recommending somebody and you're saying to us, well, actually, there's something that I've observed there that may be disqualifying. Maybe you don't know about it. And so we ask the congregation to be driven and led by the Holy Spirit and really to be going about this in a prayerful way because we recognize that even the congregation can make mistakes this way. And it's interesting in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, it says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And that shows us that a whole practice there was saturated and bathed in prayer. Prayer and fasting. A church which is serious about appointing qualified men to positions of leadership will also be very serious about prayer. 
To pray about such a decision is to recognize that it is God through the Holy Spirit ultimately who produces and would appoint these men. It's also to recognize that the church needs protection from weakness. Overlooking faults, making pragmatic decisions, choosing according to non-biblical criteria, mistaking the coveting of power for a spirit-driven aspiration, all those are dangers from which a church needs protection and divine deliverance. And through prayer, a church recognizes that it has weaknesses and that it must make a weighty decision. So that's your calling, and that's my calling. So, in what ways can it be said that the Holy Spirit produces a plurality of elders charged with overseeing Christ's sheep? The Holy Spirit produces an aspiration in men to desire the office. And so I ask you again this morning, men, are there any among you that you feel the Holy Spirit is producing that desire in you? Number two, you might aspire for the office, but are you qualified? The Holy Spirit develops qualifications in a man for the office. And you may have the character required, but are you gifted and able to teach the Word of God? The Holy Spirit produces that as well. And then lastly, the Holy Spirit leads the church to recognize what He, the Holy Spirit, is doing in producing men for the office. So in conclusion, when God designs His institutions, whether it be marriage, whether it be family, or whether it be the church, He does so with intentionality. And purpose. God's designs are not mere suggestions or merely best practices, but when God designs something and we look at his design, we understand he has built in blessings and natural protections against danger in those designs. A plurality of qualified elders is God's chosen leadership model for the church. Such a model protects the church against abuse, protects the church against imbalance while also blessing the church with wonderful benefits. A plurality of elders shares the burdens of leadership, thus providing the church with consistent personal shepherding care while not burning out one man. This arrangement also ensures that the spiritual leadership is continually encouraged by a peer group of men who understand what the job entails, also provides an accountability. Further, multiple elders provide a balance of spiritual gifts, which is impossible to find in just one man. Finally, the collective wisdom of a plurality of elders serves the church well when decisions must be made and discernment must be exercised. So as a church is faithful to using the Lord's means of growth, they can be confident that the Holy Spirit is working in them to develop men just like this. Developing qualified men for leadership. It's the Holy Spirit who gives the aspiration. It's the Holy Spirit who qualifies. It's the Holy Spirit who empowers. It's the Holy Spirit who leads the church to recognize all this. Now, that's not to say that we don't also provide deliberate training, and that's what all these lessons have to do with, right, as we continue for the next five weeks or so. So the leadership model of a plurality of qualified elders was so important to Paul and so important to Barnabas that they're willing to risk their lives to see churches established under the plurality of elders So we at Calvary Baptist Church need to submit to the same pattern, right? Let's submit to the same pattern. Now, if you've been coming here for a while, you understand that we have two elders. Uh, Our desires have more than two elders, okay? I mean, if the truest sense of the word, I mean, we really have a duality of elders right now, don't we? Uh, We would like to have a plurality of elders. And uh, so, men, we're looking to you. Is the Holy Spirit producing in you that desire? Uh, Are you qualified? Are you gifted? And then congregation at large, 
we would like to see men who recognize that in their own lives, and then for that to be complemented by a congregation that says, yeah, we see it too. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word and the clarity of your design for the church. We pray that you'll direct Calvary Baptist Church going forward. We pray that you produce men, give them a desire for the office, provide for them the qualifications, uh, give them the giftedness. And then, Lord, we just pray that you'll help us as a church to recognize such men, protect us. Lord, we don't want anybody in positions of leadership who don't genuinely desire the office or who desire it for the wrong reasons, nor do we want men in the office who are not qualified uh, or not gifted for it. So we pray for your protection. We recognize our own weaknesses. We may want leadership, uh, certain men in leadership for, for wrong reasons. And so even protect us as we discern, as we judge, as we look uh, just for evidence of what you are doing through your Holy Spirit. Um, protect us against our own weaknesses, and our own frailties, and our own sin, our own imbalances, and help us to recognize what you're doing. So Lord, give us those men. We pray that some men who have that aspiration would step up and uh, would take upon themselves that calling uh, to shepherd your people. Lord, we thank you for this. We just pray for your guiding hand all along the way. It's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen.